The picture you see up on the screen is uh, from December of 4th, 1977. It's in the capital of the Central African Empire at the time. It's no longer called that. It was the coronation of uh, His Imperial Majesty, Bokasi I. He chose this date because it was the day that Napoleon had been coronated the king. And Napoleon was his hero. The throne that you see there was built by a French designer, modeled after Napoleon's throne. It paid $2.5 million for it there in 1977. In the little procession that you see there, eight of his 29 children were in that procession, and his favorite of his nine wives was wearing a gown that had been made in Paris, $73,000 in 1977 for that particular gown. When he went up on the throne there, he took off a, a, a crown of laurel and put a crown on his head that included um, a, a, an 80-carat diamond. The cost of the crown alone was $2.5 million. The cost of the coronation for, for King Bokasa back there in 1977 was over $25 million, which at the time was over a third of his country's national gross product. I don't even know what it would be in today's dollars. Two years later, his reign was over. A bloodless coup. After a group of what they said was around 130 children threw rocks at his car as it drove through town, and he had them all killed. They decided they'd had enough of King Bokasi. The coronation that we see today from a different king, certainly done a different way, stands in stark contrast to coronations that we see in our world. Again, it's not really part of our heritage here in America. It's not really part of our political structure or even our political tradition. Our, you know, depending on the president, the inauguration is going to be filled with pomp and circumstance, more so for some than others. Uh, but we don't have anything like that. What we as kingdom citizens have to follow in our model is that of King Jesus. And that's what we see before us. So I know that we've, you know, we've been looking at Israel's need for a king. And they're yearning for a king in some ways in First and Second Samuel. And we'll get back to that uh, the week after Easter. But we fast forward from their need for a king and their search for a king to the coronation of the king that God would promise to them and we know fulfilled that promise through our eyes in the New Testament. And the event is important enough that's recorded in all four Gospels. That's rare for those things that come in the life of Jesus, but it's in all four of the Gospels. And it's in looking at all four of those Gospels, guys, that you get a full picture of what transpired on this day and what it meant. Each gospel is going to be from a different perspective and give us different details. John being pretty much the most brief of those, and that's the one we're going to look at this morning. But as we see this event unfolding before us, go ahead and turn to John 12. What you see, ta what you see taking place there on the part of the crowd and on the part of the people that are in the city is spontaneity. It's just spontaneous on their part. But what you see from Jesus is sovereign control. Sovereign control over every detail. So spontaneity on the part of the crowd, his absolute sovereign control and purposes being carried out. What you also see is the people shouting, again, from Psalm 118 
and the song and the and the gospel writers referring us back to the prophet Zechariah. You see the people singing Psalm 118, but they don't really understand what they're singing. They don't really understand what they're saying. They certainly don't understand what it's promising. Because these same voices, there's a dark side to this celebration that we see here, to this coronation. The dark side of that is that many of those same voices that are proclaiming Jesus and crying out for God's salvation are going to cry out for his crucifixion in less than a week. So as we see the event unfolding before us, there's, there's something. So later this, well, I mean, earlier this week, I, I, I had the opportunity, and it's an honor, to go up to Dan River and to Caswell Prison Unit and share with the brothers up there. So I did that this past Friday night at Dan River. And I planned to do, you know, just a, a, a brief version of this with the guys. And as I was looking back over my notes on Friday afternoon, three words came to mind that are not in your outline, but they're the words that I'm going to use today. All right? So... I just, you know, I used this with those guys Friday night, and the three words that came to mind that I used with them are celebration, coronation, and invitation. Celebration, coronation, and invitation. The first point's going to be this, this celebration where before we get to the triumphal entry, we see King Jesus being honored and receiving the devotion that he deserves. Then we're going to see the coronation. And then we'll see an invitation in the response that comes after this. So follow along with me there in chapter 12, starting in verse 1. I just want to touch on this briefly. Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That, by the way, is pointing us back to chapter 11, which is, in in my mind, the greatest miracle that Jesus performed other than his own resurrection. You remember the account of him coming and raising Lazarus from the dead. So the account here in chapter 12 tells us that that this is where they're at. They're in the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you. But you do not always have me. So the setting here for this celebration, and it is just that. It's just a, it's just showing hospitality in the home and a celebration of Lazarus's resurrection. And I would imagine this would be some kind of party. I would, I would think it would be. And the setting here is one where there's desperation on the part of those at least on the outside. Chapter 11 has told us that as, as this account unfolded in chapter 11, there was a plot to kill Jesus. Because this was getting way out of hand. That's hard to argue with a raised from the dead man, right? It's hard to argue with that. I shared with the guys Friday night. Don't you dislike, I know I do, being around someone who, matter, who no matter what story you tell, they can one-up you. Right? 
No matter what you do, well, let me tell you what I went through. Let me tell you what I did. Lazarus never had to worry about that. He never had to worry about somebody doing one better than he did. All right? Let me tell you what I did, guys. I was there talking to Elijah. Man, the angels, it was awesome. All of a sudden, Lazarus! You can't top his story. So Lazarus is there, and it's created no small stir in the community. In fact, it tells us there that they're trying to decide what, what are we to do? The leaders, the religious leaders, the Pharisees are just, it's, it's getting out of control. Caiaphas, the high priest that year, steps in. Do you not understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people? Not that the whole nation should perish? Cosmas said, you guys don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're talking about. It says in verse 51, he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And not only plans to put him to death, but also plans to put Lazarus to death too, it tells us in chapter 12. So their practical answer is we need to do away with this man or these guys. It's better that than we lose our nation, lose our control, lose our standing, lose it all. They don't even understand they're being prophetic. That's the setting for this celebration. And the thing I just want to point out, I'm not going to take the time to to take this apart as it will be. I want us to look at these three main characters for just a second. Martha, Lazarus, and Mary. And hopefully see ourselves in this, because this celebration is a picture of what happens in the lives of those who have genuinely been changed by Jesus. This is what life looks like for those who have been genuinely changed by the love and grace of Jesus. Martha is serving And that's what Martha does. (laughs) That's just what she does. Martha served. It says Lazarus was one of those reclining at table. You may remember back in Luke chapter 10 where Martha, it tells us, was distracted by serving. She was serving. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And and Jesus kind of rebukes her in a gentle way and saying one thing is necessary. She is not being rebuked here. She has learned her lesson. I believe what Martha is doing is exercising her spiritual gift of hospitality and service in a way that glorifies Jesus and builds up and honors others. Martha is just serving and doing it for the glory of God. What about Lazarus? Well, Brother Lazarus is just breathing. He's just breathing and walking and talking because he couldn't do it a few days before, right? He's just a life being lived for the glory of Christ who changed his life. You're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. But you're alive to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our role. That's our, that's our part to play in this. Just in our living, just in our carrying out our day-to-day activities, people say, that guy's been changed. Mary? Well, Mary's the focus of this. And it tells us here that she was extraordinarily expressive and extravagant as she worshipped and gave her devotion to Jesus there. This nard, as we see later on, was worth, it says, 300 denarii. Denarii is a day's wage in the culture and economy of that day. This is a year's salary about to be broken and poured out on the feet of Jesus. 
a year's salary. And as it's broken and poured out on his feet, she humbles herself, wipes his feet with her hair, and the house, it says, is filled with a fragrance. It is costly, it is extravagant, it is beautiful, it is impactful. The legacy lives on today. The other gospel says that Jesus says, what she has been done for me will be told about her from now on. And we are, right? We're talking about her gift. We're talking about her worship, her extravagance. And it's held up for us as a model. And so what we see in this, there's so many applications that we could take from this. I was drawn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where it says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Paul says we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, it's the fragrance of death to death. To the other, it's the fragrance of life to life. Here's what one commentator said, though. Mary broke the container. The aroma of Christ was so honoring to him and so refreshing to others. But this does not occur when we give him half. It does not occur when we give Him half our heart, or half our pocketbook, or half our talents, or half our ambition, or half of our lives, or half of our boyfriend, or half of our girlfriend. It comes by giving Him everything. And so this is a picture, it's a microcosm of what happens when our lives have been changed by Jesus. Like Martha, we selflessly and joyfully serve others as we serve Jesus. Like Lazarus, we just live our lives for him, joyful and thankful for every breath. And like Mary, we pour it out extravagantly, sacrificially. And through that, the aroma of Christ just is spread around us everywhere. Now you will note, extravagant, heartfelt worship is not understood, it is rebuked, it is refused by those outside of Christ. And that's what we see from Lazarus. I mean, excuse me, that's what we see from Judas and from his response there. So there's a plot there. They're going to oppose Jesus. Again, it's just one thing after another just makes it worse and worse and worse. Verse 10 says, So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So you have this multiplication going into effect here. The work of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the preaching and teaching of Christ, plus the work of those who have been changed by Christ. And sooner or later you have this tsunami of grace blowing across the community. (laughs) And the religious are wondering, what can we do to stop it? So now we come to verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him 
was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. A coronation. The king comes and he is praised, he is acclaimed, and he receives it. He doesn't stop it, as Jonathan read earlier out of the Gospel of Luke. He comes and he receives this praise. And he tells the Pharisees when they rebuke him, if this stops, the rocks will cry out. So he receives this acclamation, even knowing how fickle and shallow it is. So he comes as the sovereign Lord. John doesn't give us the detail. He just says that Jesus found a young donkey. (laughs) But we saw in the other gospel accounts that it's much more than that, right? Jesus is sovereign over every detail of this. Listen to the way that Mark describes it. Turn over to the gospel of Mark and just hear his account of this. The reason I want to point you to this is because of one of the references that Mark makes. One of the things that we hear in Mark's account. It's very similar to Matthew's in Mark 11. They drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said, Go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll enter. And immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. It's like something out of Star Wars. We need the colt. Oh, yes, you need the colt. Take it. It's just just unfolding here before us. So he is sovereign over all of these details. Now, Mark gives us this, and, and there's, there's mention made of this colt. Matthew mentions the colt and the foal, and there's a connection there. I'm going to touch on that in just a second. But following, following along with John's outline, following the way John accounts for this, let's just follow along and see what he says. So, they took these palm branches, they went out to meet him, and they're crying out from Psalm 118. They're singing this song of praise. So he has put all these details together. And he is sovereign even in the fulfillment of Scripture. His perfect obedience is what John and all the gospel writers want us to see. His perfect obedience to the Scriptures. In John chapter 2, at the wedding of Cana, remember Mary came to Jesus and said, we're out of wine. And like an obedient son, he says, woman, my hour has not yet come, but he goes ahead and does it. But it's not his hour yet. Later on in John chapter 7, they're seeking to arrest him. But it says no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. What are they talking about? In the next chapter, in chapter 8, same thing. He's preaching in the temple, speaking in the treasury. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But we're going to see in the very next paragraph after this passage that when the Greeks come and inquire about seeing Jesus... He says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is sovereign not only over the details, but He's sovereign over the day. He's sovereign over the hour. He is sovereign over the fulfillment of Scripture. John, in verse 14, quotes from Zechariah, from the prophet Zechariah. But something that Mark points out, and something that we would see if we go deeper into this, is it goes even further back than that. 
Because as Jacob lay on his deathbed giving his blessings to his sons, we read this in in Genesis. All the way back in Genesis 49. As Jacob is pronouncing his blessing to Judah, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between, from between his feet, and as tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We are familiar with that part of that blessing, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah. We remember that part of it. The next sentence in that blessing is one that we might not catch so quickly. Because it says there, Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt, to the choice vine. So what we have here is one of those passages with dual meaning. In Genesis 49, as Jacob speaks this to his sons, he's talking about the prosperity of Judah that would follow. The blessing of God is going to be on you in such a way, son, that you're going to, you're going to have grapevines that are going to be so flourishing that everywhere you tie your donkey, it's going to be tied to a flourishing vine. You will be blessed. But the dual meaning of that that we see in Jesus points us past Jacob to the descendant of Judah. And God is connecting the promise there to the promised Messiah. And the point of that little detail is that tied up donkey that the, that the gospel writers talk, us, talk to us about points us to the one who is a descendant of the tribe of Judah who is the Messiah. So it goes back to Genesis. But Zechariah going back 500 years from this event, told them exactly what to look for. And this Jesus coming in on this colt, on this foal of a donkey, is not the first descendant of David that's ridden on a donkey or on a mule. Because we look in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, Solomon was presented as David's rightful successor as he rode on David's mule, on David's beast of burden. So Jesus is not the first one to come into town riding on a donkey. And the important thing about the donkey is not so much what he is, but what he represents. And what he's not. He is not a war horse. He is not a stallion. And Jesus is not riding into town with an army, and he's not carrying a sword. And the donkey here, the foal of the donkey, is a picture of humility. It's a picture of meekness. It's a picture of... Of, of lowliness, King Jesus came to save, but not the way they wanted. And He came to bring in a kingdom, but not the one they wanted. And He came with an agenda, but it was not their agenda. And that's the picture that we have here in this donkey. He came to free them, but not from Rome. To free them from sin. In Turkey, when we're there, when we've been there on a couple of mission trips, one time we had the opportunity to go to this amazing museum, the Topeka the Castle, I think is what it's called. I didn't pronounce that right, but inside there is in this guarded, ornate display case, is the sword of Muhammad. And it's the sword that Muhammad carried, they say, when he went in and, and, and took Mecca. Killing those who would not kneel. Getting rid of those who would not obey. Taking no captives, if you will. There's no museum piece for Jesus' entry into the city. There's no war horse or stallion. Jesus came humbly, meekly, 
Not to take life, but to give his. He came not to bring war, but to bring peace. In fact, if we read further in Zechariah chapter 9, then in verse 10 he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. That's what Jesus came to do. So he came as a king, but not the one they wanted. He came with an agenda and he came with a purpose, but not the one they sought. You see, the people's criteria for a king was political power. It was military strength. It was a strong national identity. The people's criteria for the one that they wanted to follow would be a provider who would keep them fed. In fact, Jesus said so earlier in John chapter 6. I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because of the miraculous signs, but because you ate loaves and had your fill. They liked their full bellies. They also liked to be entertained, if you will, to be excited, to be enthused. And it says there the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was because they heard that he had done this sign. Let me just take a second to apply this to us, because I think there's some things here we can take away. It says here that John's disciples, that Jesus' disciples in verse 18, did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. Remember at the end of John's account in the gospel where Jesus comes back from the grave and he's walking with those two disciples and he opens their eyes to everything there is to know about him, starting in the Old Testament and working his way forward. He did the same thing with the disciples. They didn't understand it until they understood the context of all of God's word. Well, listen, when our eyes are focused with the blinders of culture, with the blinders of personal preference, with the blinders of public acclaim and political power, we're no better off than they were that day in Jerusalem. If our eyes are not set on Jesus according to the way he has revealed to us in his word, According to the new eyes and the new heart that he gives us through the gospel, we're never going to see him. So, so our praise will be fickled and shallow when he fails to meet our expectations. Our prayers will be short when he's not answering them the way that we think he ought to. Our devotion will be limited and our understanding shallow when we don't see on things folding culturally the way we think they ought to unfold. You see how we have to be careful? We have to remember that God will not allow himself in 1 Samuel to be boxed up and used as a talisman. And neither will Jesus. We see him for who he is. We see him for how he's revealed in scripture. Or we don't see him at all. And that's how we acclaim him as king. That's how we see him and honor him. By the way. It does us well to be constantly reminded of what we see over there in Revelation chapter 19. He will not come back next time on a donkey. We know that, right? Revelation 19, I saw the heavens open and behold a white horse. (laughs) And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written and no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
Oh, wait, there is a sword. (laughs) Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This church is our king. This is our king. Let's look at the next portion there. And I put the word invitation on this, even though it's implicit. It's not explicit. The Pharisees up in verse 19 are just losing it. (laughs) They said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Generalities and exaggerations were pretty common in the vernacular of the day. Basically, the paraphrase would be there. This is going nowhere fast, guys. This is going nowhere fast. And everybody has gone after him. Well, little do they know that that is true in a way. And the next verse tells us. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Or you could say Gentiles there. Greeks there is generic in a sense that it's just not Jewish people. Those who were there worshiping at the feast, some were Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, the word there for see is not just see with our eyes. The idea there is we want to we want to have a conversation with him. We want to interview him. We want to sit down with him. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus gives the strangest answer here. Look at what he says in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus gives an invitation here to those who would come and see him. And he says, if you want to see me, I invite you to look at the cross and I invite you to die. I invite you to look at the cross and I invite you to die. Because in dying, you will live. And in dying to yourself and living for the glory of God, you will be honored by my Father. It's an amazing answer that he gives to these who come and seek out Jesus. Now, these Gentiles come and inquiring are exactly what God has promised would take place. Ask of me and I will give the nations to you as your inheritance, he said in Psalm 2. Earlier in Psalm 98, he's made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in sight of the nations. God has promised that this request would come. He's also purposed that this hour would come and that through this hour, that would be done. Through the cross, through the resurrection, through the gospel going out to the ends of the earth, the Gentiles will come and inquire and find Jesus. But seeing and following Jesus is not what they or we would expect. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Seeing and following Jesus means just that. Dying like Christ died. 
That's the picture. A grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is talking about the fruit of the gospel. He's talking about the fruit of his own blood. But he's also talking about what would happen later on down the road when his church would take that gospel message out to the ends of the earth. It is through death that life comes. For crying out loud, that's what we say at every graveside, is it not, from 1 Corinthians 15? That's the promise of our resurrection. Paul says a grain of wheat does not go into the ground, but that it dies and comes back up in a different way than it went in. And it's our hope of the resurrection that Jesus is pointing to here. Seeing and following Jesus means dying. Seeing and following Jesus also means that we gain life. And it's the life that He gives. It's not the life that we would desire or the life that this world offers. In fact, He says, the life that this world offers needs to be hated. We need to turn away from it. We need to repudiate it and reject it. Because if we will reject that life, we gain eternal life. If we reject the glory of this world, we get the glory of God. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the pride will be crushed. So the picture here is if we want to see and follow Jesus, it means desiring the life that He gives. And the life that He gives is a life of service. It's the life of following after Him. He says earlier in Mark, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And here He says, if anyone serves Me, he must follow Me. And the picture here is, it's, yes, it's of Martha, but it's of, it's of living our lives in devotion to Christ, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. We do not serve for the sake of others. We serve for the sake of Jesus. And in serving Jesus, we do serve others. <laughs> you see that? It's in loving Him and serving Him that we best love and serve others. And then finally, seeing and serving Jesus, dying to self, receiving the life He promises, gives us this honor it talks about there from God. The Father will honor Him. As I stood before those brothers Friday night up at the, up at the prison, I kind of keyed in on this verse for just a second, just since the Lord leading me to do that. Because I was in front of a room full of many guys who had never had a father come and put his arm around them and pat them on the back and say, I am proud of you. You've done a good job. In fact, I'm probably speaking to a room full of people here who've never heard that. There were tears in some of those guys' eyes. Because they did not have that. They'd never had a human father come and affectionately tell them, I'm proud of you. I appreciate you. You've done a good job. But those brothers rejoiced in recognizing that we have a heavenly father who is perfect. And as we die to self and live for Jesus, and others are benefited and blessed from the fruit of that life that comes from him, we will one day stand before that perfect heavenly Father and hear Him say, Well done, Son. Good job. I'm proud of you. And God will honor His children in that way. That was the promise that we have. So just to wrap that part of it up, this is the paradox of the Christian life that Jesus gives us here. He says later on, If anyone sees Me, he sees Him who sent Me. So the answer to the question from the Greeks there, the answer to our question is, if we want to see Jesus, we need to recognize how hard it is. 
in the sense that dying is hard. Right? It is hard. And also understand that following Jesus is hard because it means we are living and loving Him instead of living and loving ourselves. And serving Him as we serve others is hard because we're not the sinner. He is, and others for His sake is. That's hard. Praise God that the power that raised Jesus from the grave, Peter tells us, is given to us to do those hard things. Right? And the response, what we receive from that, it is glorious. It's the fruit of a a Christ-centered life. It's the reality that life that is rejected and hated here that the world would offer us gains the glory of God. That where Jesus is, we are. And that one day we will hear that praise and honor from God Himself. Well done. Well done. Let's pray together. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want to close one more time by just inviting you to come to Jesus today. Jesus rode into that town that day on the foal of a donkey to free you from the burden of your sin and to break the chains of that captivity that keep you in bondage. Jesus came to receive the wrath of God so that you could be given forgiveness today. And I invite you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Repenting of that sin and offering Him. Just offering Him your love. Offering Him your life. And church, I invite us to go back to the Scriptures and see Jesus as He's revealed to us there. Love Him. Serve Him. Honor Him as we should. And Lord Jesus, we pray that You, through the power of Your Holy Spirit, will enable us to do that. And we ask that for Your sake and for Your glory. Amen.